everyone welcome to talking research i am asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations This conversation features an in-depth discussion of sexual violence, both in specific cases and more generally. If this is something that you find disturbing, please feel free to stop listening at any point. In this conversation, I'm joined by Laura Lamisniemi. Laura is an assistant professor at the University of Warwick and her research focuses on gender, law and class and how these intersect and in this conversation she talks to me about reform around the age of consent in England and specifically about the consent law amendment act which was an act passed in England in 1885 that raised the age of consent for girls from 13 to 16 and she discusses her work researching how that act panned out the reasons why this this reform was passed at that point and how it impacted vulnerable girls especially those from the working class backgrounds so it's a really fascinating conversation and i hope you enjoy it but if you need there are links to organizations that support survivors of sexual violence in the podcast description so please feel free to use those and If you have any feedback about the podcast or about this episode specifically please I'd love to hear from you so drop me a line the email address and social media handles are all also mentioned in the podcast description so that's everything from me I hope you enjoyed this episode I had a great time chatting to Laura and I think just discussing history of where we are and the laws that we have today it's just fascinating so let's dive in So Laura first thing i want to ask you is tell us about yourself you know in how would you introduce yourself in a way that you like to be introduced uh hi and uh, thanks asmita um firstly i want to say thank you so much for asking me to take part i'm really excited to take part and talk about my research i've been following this uh podcast for now the last year and and there's been some oh. really great series so uh thanks for asking me to take part so to introducing myself thank my name is <laughs> yeah sure Uh my name is Laura Lamasniemi. I'm a assistant professor at uh Warwick Law School. Um I'm running modules on criminal law and gender and the law at Warwick and my research really focuses on the same. It focuses on the intersection of criminal law and gender mainly from a historical perspective. Mm-hmm. And my current project, the bigger project that I'm working on is on history of sexual consent in criminal courts. And today mm. we'll speak a small about a small part of that project focusing on age of consent in late 19th century. Wow, okay. I mean, I want to say before I ask you for the questions, just thank you so much for, you know, coming on board and also I want to tell everyone that we've rescheduled this episode so many times primarily because of uh, me. So I'm very very grateful that, you know, Laura has been able to make time and been so flexible. So thank you again. But I want to ask you how you got into researching gender and law. I mean, the history of uh, consent and all of that. Like, how did you get into researching these specific topics? Um, I think it's something I've been broadly always interested in. 
And I've always been mm-hmm. interested in that sort of broader relationship between gender and law. And then the focus on criminal law and the focus on sexual offense and consent, that has come much later on. But at the core of it, always that idea of the power dynamics that are that comes to women who've been traditionally marginalized from the legal sector and from the legal power. So that I have always been interested in. And I've been a feminist for as long as I can remember and way before I went to law school. So I always knew that actually once I progressed in my studies, gender is something that I would want to be focusing on during my studies and then after. Um, I didn't know exactly what context or how, but I knew that this is where I wanted to focus my sort of career my work on um so later then when I decided to do a PhD I knew that I would want it to focus on gender and the law and really on the ideas of how women are perceived in the eyes of law um and often also how sort of these ideas of victimhood how are they ingrained in law particularly female victimhood how is it ingrained in law so my PhD research originally my PhD research focused on the origins of anti-trafficking legislation and how it came to existence and why it came to existence in the late mm. 19th century. But when I started my BSc research, I was looking at the same in a contemporary context. So I was looking at anti-trafficking legislation and campaigns and even images in the contemporary context and really think about what does these tell us about female victimhood. And then when I sort of went further ahead with my research, I realized that actually there's so much of this idea of victimhood and the ways portrayed in law and in images that is really deeply rooted in history. And so to yeah. really understand those ideas, I had to look into history uh, rather than the contemporary context. And that's what I did. So I shifted all my focus to history and I really focused on women's legal history ever since. Mm. And, um, and often I think when it comes to particular history, we Women are not really represented in legal history in particular that much, or if they are represented in legal history, they're often viewed as quite passive. And that's something that I wanted to look into and possibly change the way that we look at women in, in, sort of in legal history in particular. Mm. Yeah, there's this wonderful quote, I don't know who said it, but uh, it's about history and why we should be interested in learning about history. And it goes something like, if we don't know where we come from, we don't know where we're going. And I think like what your work is, it's so valuable because it really helps us understand how, you know, the present day understandings of consent and, you know, how the justice system views women, where it comes from. And, you you know, the article that we're going to talk about, it's so fascinating. I'll put a link of that in the episode description. But, you know, the first thing I want to ask you is because we're going to be talking about consent law. So what was the CLAA and, you know, what does it stand for and what did it do? So a lot of my work focuses on this one particular piece of legislation from late Victorian period mm-hmm. called the Criminal Law Amendment Act. And the Criminal mm-hmm. Law Amendment Act is often shortened to CLAA. And it really is a hugely important piece of legislation. And it had a big impact on various aspects of sexual offenses, but also it had an impact on sort of public morality more broadly. Um, And it might seem like 1880s was a long time ago, and it was a long time ago, but this particular era was a really important period for the development, really, of the modern criminal law. And there was really extensive focus on sexual morality in that period, and in particular on regulating sexual behavior and regulating morality through criminal law. Um, Mm -hmm. And this period in the late 19th century also is really vibrant, and it coincides with the 
emergence of women's rights groups, evangelical moral puritan groups, and just really a more interventionist style in criminal law. So all in all, um, it's an interesting time, but also we can definitely still see reflections in the modern criminal law from this period and of this Criminal Amendment Act in particular. Um, mm. So in 1885, this legislation, Criminal Amendment Act, was enacted. Um, it came after a series of campaigns on issues around AIDS of consent, international trafficking women, and concern over prostitution. So really sort of similar mm. issues that we see women's rights campaigners focusing on today, and we see international law and domestic laws trying to grapple on today. And mm. so these campaigns in, the, uh, in that period it, they really brought together these moral plural organizations and women's rights groups and clergy. And there was a lot of uh, overall discussion on the newspapers on these issues around ace of consent and traffic and so on. Um, and there was this growing concern that girls, and in particular working class girls, that they had to be protected by law from wrong kind of sex. And this mm. meant sex too early or any type of sexual encounters outside marriage but also exploitative working, exploitative um, situations like traffic and so on. So there's a lot of concern there over protecting girls, um, particularly young girls from this kind of dangerous ideas of sex. And right. this um, concern at the time over sexualization of young girls and particularly working class girls, it was really fueled by this scandalous and really hyperbolic reportage called The Maiden Debut to Modern Babylon. Um, the Maiden Tribute to Modern Babylon was a series of articles published in a newspaper in 1885. Um, it was written by this pioneering journalist called W.C. Stead. Um, he's sort of often referred to as sort of the father of the tabloid journalism. And mm. this reportage really focused on child prostitution in London. And um, there was not really evidence at the time from police that child prostitution was on the increase, but Stead and all the other campaigners, they believed that child prostitution in London was absolutely everywhere and it was a huge issue. And in this uh, newspaper article, there was all these stories, like really kind of lurid stories of parents who were selling their children in East End and gentlemen seducers who were targeting young working class girls. So it was a really controversial and it was quite a scandalous reportage but it was also a really successful piece of tabloid journalism. And it was very widely circulated. It was the most circulated newspaper reportage at the time. And then ultimately, that was the catalyst that left the parliament to enact the Criminal Amendment Act. So what mm. the act did, it raised the age of consent for girls from 13 to 16. Um, but right. it had a big impact on other uh, areas as well. It, for the first time, it criminalized brothel keeping in England. Um, it also criminalized procurement of girls and women for prostitution and trafficking. So this is really also the first anti-trafficking legislation in England. And then also problematically, it created this offense of gross indecency. The offense of gross indecency, it was really used to prosecute men for sodomy. So we know the stories mm -hmm. of Oscar Wilde, Alan Turing. So all of these men, they were prosecuted and convicted under this act for gross indecency. So it's a really influential piece of legislation right. that really stayed, uh, was really influential all the way through 20th century in all these aspects. That's really interesting. I mean, um, tabloid journalism, I just want to go back to what you said. It's mm. essentially this, this kind of 
um journalism which focuses on really scandalous or you know how would you describe it like present day what comes to mind is like page 3 maybe maybe um, and i think there are sort of similar sometimes when you think about something like we read stories of uh women who have been trafficked for sexual exploitation for example um often in tabloid yeah. journalism we would maybe come across sometimes similar stories so there's these stories that are really um that they tell stories of really extreme and severe forms of exploitation absolutely horrible stories but often they're told in a maybe in a similar kind of fashion that so the details that all oh, only if the stories are so terrible and so severe um and these people have absolutely no choice only in those circumstances we would sort of recognize these women as victims so i think the tabloid journalism i think we still have this sort of similar type of tabloid journalism over exploitation of women and sexual exploitation of women where sometimes the tone can be quite problematic maybe the aim is highlighting mm. exploitation but sometimes the tone and the images used they can be quite exploitative in themselves yeah yeah this reminds me of the you know pres- like what we're hearing a lot about the jeffrey epstein case and uh you know his his victims were all underage they mm. were you know 14 year old 17 year olds and you know the how the newspapers have covered it it's all been like child prostitute and mm. um you know really like giving them that 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 sort of consent which they couldn't have possibly just taking away the the fact that they were actually children at the time when he you know abused them and really just emphasize just sort of shaping them as adults really the way the newspapers have covered them i think this brings me to my next question about the consent law amendment act you said that sexual maturity or age of consent was raised to 16 but was this the case for all cases because there's this really interesting aspect in your research where you talk about how you know possession of property can relate mm. to the age of consent so tell us about that yeah that's a really important question and um i completely agree with you about your earlier point about epstein and i think in a lot of these cases the way that the media portrays some of the victims that we have seen in the cases of epstein is actually not entirely unlike like the cases that i've seen here is that these girls because they've been from troubled backgrounds for example they are seen as much more yeah. mature than some other girls of their age would be and then because they're seen as more mature oh well they must have been mature and they're able to consent and there's very similar tropes that we can see from from the victorian period as well i mean that's so sad yeah <laughs> it is it's so sad to think that we haven't really advanced since the victorian period and well we have advanced maybe not as much as uh people think that we have uh in i think in many mm. ways uh particularly in in law and legal language i think there's still a lot of resonances from that period um yeah. so the so you asked the question about if sexual maturity was set at 16 um in all circumstances and it's actually a really important question because it's quite a confusing in many ways it's quite a confusing period because um age of consent wasn't the same for all sexual activity so there was this all this hype and discussion around the criminal amendment act because it changed it raised age of consent from 13 to 16 but that was for sex outside marriage and actually so it raised the age of consent from 6 uh, 13 to 16 for girls at that time and it remains 16 today so actually mm-hmm. age of consent hasn't been reformed or looked at uh, when it comes to this kind of activity since 1885 um but at the same time uh, so all this was all this focus on criminal amendment act and this was actually 
absolutely humongous at the time. So newspapers were writing about it. Uh, people were talking about it. There was all these campaigns on it. So it was a really serious um, sort of public discussion happening on this at the time. Um, but all of this focus on this Criminal Amendment Act and how important it is to raise states of consent from uh, 13 to 16, but that was all focused on sex outside marriage. And there were actually various differences of ages and maturity all happening at the same time. Um, mm. And it's also important to say that the Criminal Amendment Act only raised states of consent for girls and boys had no minimum age of consent for sex at all, which goes back to the way I think boys were understood and how uh, boys were always seen sort of more sexually mature from early age and how boys didn't need to be protected from sexual encounters, whereas girls did. Um, so the Criminal Amendment Act raised age of consent for girls for sex outside mm-hmm. marriage from 13 to 16. But at the same time, under common law, the minimum age of marriage was set for boys at 14 and for girls at 12. So a girl mm. could be married off and have sex within that marriage as young as 12, as long as there was parental consent to this marriage. But outside that marriage, the limit was 16. So mm. it's clear that age of consent here that it related to ideas of respectability and marriage. And like you say, there's also an element where it relates to property. And there's definitely a relationship between property ownership and consent, although perhaps not quite as obvious as the relationship to marriage. So mm. at the same time, all of this was happening. The age of consent was in race, a lot of discussion around it. Um, under the, what is called the Offense Against the Person Act of 1861, um, there was an offense that was taking a girl away from her parents. So the wording of the law wasn't explicit about what they meant about taking a girl away from the parents. But what we know from case law, that it was understood as taking a girl away from the parents to seduce her to have sex or to elope. And the girl's Mm. consent was not relevant here if she was under a certain age. Ordinarily, under this law, it was an offense to take a girl away from her parents if she was 16. But if the girl had property or if she was an heiress, that age limit was 21. So we can see here that the law created a number of different ages of consent and different ages of maturity for girls. So the more acceptable mm-hmm. or even desirable the behavior was, like getting married, the lower the age of consent was. Then whereas a behavior that we, was considered to be harmful, like sex outside marriage or eloping with someone that the parents didn't approve of, the age of consent was higher, particularly for girls who mm-hmm. had some sort of wealth or property to their name. Right, right. To me, it sounds like, you know, it really was about giving parents or giving wealthier people the right to decide what counts as abuse and what doesn't and giving them that autonomy over that girl's body i don't know if that's a very simplistic no i I think you're very right and i think in many ways these laws uh, they really did strengthen parental control particularly when it came to uh, middle class parents and wealthier parents so those parents would have incredible amount of control over their daughter's sexual partners and um, people they married and so on. Whereas then for working class girls where they didn't have the property, that control was still there, but it wasn't as prominent. Mm-hmm. You know, coming to working class girls and coming to girls who wouldn't have, who didn't have those necessarily those strong family mm-hmm. patronages or who didn't have uh the same resources that middle class or upper class girls had and who were traditionally seen as more promiscuous and you know more 
more difficult to deal with from a from a victorian legal perspective mm-hmm. so what were the attitudes to working class girls um there was um, a lot of, well firstly there was a lot of concerns over working class girls but there was also incredible amount of prejudice uh, over the girls and their mm-hmm. behavior um so there's a lot of concerns over their morality and over their upbringing in particular and right. there was this concern that the girls were really overly sexualized from early age and that they're having sex too early or that they're having sex outside marriage or worst of all that they were being promiscuous and having sex with multiple different partners which was considered to be mm. both morally bad but also bad for the girls future and many of the campaigners here they really viewed sex outside marriage as truly dangerous um on one hand it was viewed as immoral as we would understand it to be maybe at that period but in a more practical sense they were really concerned about pregnancies and they were worried that mm-hmm. pregnancies outside wedlock could have devastating consequences for the girl in question um it could really mean that the girls would be fired from the employment that they had or that they couldn't get employment in the future so there was that sort of genuine concern that sex outside marriage could lead to a downward spiral leading the girl not to have a good productive or married life later on because they were mm-hmm. considered to be somehow damaged or in terms of marriage prospects but also then having this inability to have uh, employment and look after themselves in that sense um mm-hmm. but in the same time there was a lot of prejudice as well so it wasn't purely sort of that concern over their future but that that concern came with a lot of prejudice and often in these campaigns uh and the campaigns for law reform they centered around these stories of young girls who just didn't understand it that they didn't understand the value and the importance of maintaining their virginity in particular and you see in the maiden tribute that i mentioned before it's full of these stories of young girls who are simply too silly to understand how important it is for them to maintain their virginity and not to have sex with men outside marriage so hmm. a lot of the reform campaigners the girls just couldn't really be trusted to look after themselves because they were too silly or they were too easily swayed or they were seduced by gentlemen or men in their communities mm. so they were also framed as really naive and people who couldn't look after themselves at all um and it's mm. because of all this because of this concern but also because of this prejudice that we see a lot of interventions that are directly focusing on working class families and family life in that period Mm it's interesting that the blame lies with the underage girl as opposed to the older gentleman who's doing the seducing and i mean going from here you've said that the the consent laws were you know they were not just fundamentally patriarchal in their conception uh they were also you know they also embodied class hierarchies so you know we, we've spoken a little bit about the the patriarchal and class based nature of these laws but you know coming back to the reform aspect tell us more about how the consent laws embodied patriarchy and class um yeah sure and i think that's really both patriarchy and i think social class is really really at the core of a lot of these reforms and and later then when we see how they were enforced i think that remains there as well in a different sense but that sort of ideas of class and perceptions about class are certainly underlying quite a lot of this and there's a clear class dynamic at the core of these legal interventions um yeah. the reform campaigners you know the members of parliament the people who were basically responsible for the law reform 
they were all middle classes and upper classes and often they did have quite strong prejudice over the working and the what they considered to be lower classes um and really first of all all of the discussion on native consent reform it really focused purely on working class girls the concern was over mm. their sexuality lack of family values um or perceived lack of family values and they were seen particularly vulnerable to being seduced because they were not seen to have the same kind of equal equally strong protection and sort of these moral values instilled in them yeah. like middle and upper class girls would have had um and so throughout these interventions and in the court cases that we'll uh, maybe talk about later, we can see that it wasn't really so much p- protecting girls from sexual encounters, but rather protecting the girls from wrong kind of sexual encounters or what the campaigners believe to be wrong kind of sexual encounters. So it seems a lot of the yeah. interventions were there really to save the girls for marriage rather than to truly protect them, as we have seen. Mm-hmm. Because age of marriage, like I mentioned, it already remain very low at 12 for girls. Um, and in many mm-hmm. ways, it comes through in all of these things that for the campaigners, really, marriage was the most important institution in the girl's life. Marriage was viewed yeah. as a protective institution. It was socially important. And it was also something that the parents could consent to. So in many ways, the parents had a great deal of control, like you mentioned already before, that the parents had a great deal of control over the girl's sexuality. Um, and the law strengthened that control, particularly when it came to those uh, wealthier parents. So when I talk about dates of consent reforms being patriarchal, I mean all of those things. I mean that the control mm. it gave to parents over the girls' sexual behavior, the control it gave to parents over the girls' partners, the yeah. incredible focus on marriage, and the fact that boys had no minimum age of consent at all. Uh, and all of this was purely focused on protecting the girl. And sometimes... It was really, like you say, sometimes really taking control of any decisions the girl herself had. So all of those things sort of amplify how patriarchal these reforms were. Yeah, and when you say protecting the girls, it even sounds like policing the girls, you know, policing their sexualities so they don't deviate from what, from this upper class, upper middle class understanding of what ideal is. And, you know, it even sounds like this this idea of policing uh, working class girls, they were seen as sort of these farmhands or, you know, mm. p- people who would produce, uh, work in factories and produce produce things. And if, if these girls became pregnant, they wouldn't be able to do that. So, you know, that, that sort of class-based interest is very visible there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so tell us about the conviction rates following this, um, you know, this around this law reform and also, you know, the nature of sentences for sexual, you know, sexual violence crimes and, you know, tell us more about that, what they were like. Um, so, uh, so also this law came into force in uh, 1885 and then, so in my I then wanted to have a look at what happened after. So we had all this discussion around uh, age of consent and protection of girls and sort of framing these girls as really innocent and victims something we need to protect. So I was interested in how did this then translate into court proceedings? Like did the courts take yeah. a similar approach? So I was looking at um, sort of court reporting on it. And firstly, I have to say, it's actually very difficult, if not almost impossible to put together a completely authoritative statistics on this as the records from the time they just haven't really been preserved as well as we would like them to be. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of the court records haven't been preserved at all. And 
while some listings to remain, they're not entirely reliable. Um, mm. That said, from we have sort of better records for some courts, and it would seem that statistics from courts like Old Bailey, which is the Central Criminal Court in London, with better recording, it would seem that the conviction rate for cases of child sexual abuse would be around 60%. And mm. so when these cases came to court, there were cases dealing with uh, where the victim would have been under the age of consent. So these would really be cases of uh, child sexual abuse in many ways. And so mm. the 60%, if we take from um, Old Bailey, it's quite low percentage of conviction because we know that actually only a small fraction of cases at the time, they would have made it to courts due to the very nature of these crimes and how yeah. often these crimes weren't reported at the time. So the cases that would have been reported would have been Cases that I think we would, in today's terms, we would see as sort of a, from a prosecution terms, there would have been quite a um, easy to prosecute case in many ways. So in that case, the 6% mm. is quite low. And mm. if uh, the defendant, if they were convicted, the sentences really varied here. And it varied right. on how the facts were interpreted and what kind of offenses the defendant was charged with. And this would seem like, it would be all based on the facts of the case, but it really wasn't. Um, and it would seem that different judges took cases to very different direction. So in some cases, if the defendant successfully raised mitigating factors and managed to get the charges reduced, the sentences um, could be even for a few months, even if on the facts the case would seem quite brutal. And then in other instances, we see sentences of 15 years or 10 years um, so mm. there's not really um so based on the facts of the case, you can't really determine what the sentence would be because they would have been taken to different direction. And what seems to be quite interesting, but also very, very problematic here, is the type of evidence that the courts would accept as mitigating factors. So mm. in some of the cases that I read, the judges accepted overcrowding. And for example, they accepted that if a father was sharing a bed with their daughter, they could accept that as a mitigating factor for child sexual abuse. Jeez. Um, alcohol was often raised and accepted as a mitigating factor, which is very different from modern criminal law where alcohol isn't a mitigating factor. And in one of the cases, which is a terrible case that I reviewed, uh, a man received a reduction in their sentence for raping a 14-month-old baby because at the time of the offense, they were intoxicated. Mm. So these are really problematic for, from the modern perspective. Um, and there are a number of different reasons why the, for the lenient sentences, but mainly it would seem that the court's approach to these cases and when it was combined with the suspicion that the victims were faced, when you put that together, it seemed that the sentences were, in some cases, unduly lenient, but in other cases, um, they remained quite harsh. Hmm. And appearing in court and, you know, reporting a rape, uh, a rape or, you know, any, any sexual violence related crime, you know, for a woman, it's, it, it, it's recorded, you know, victims. So I would say that it's a, it's, it can be an extremely dramatic mm -hmm. process. It can be like being re-victimized, you know going through the trial process, going through the criminal law process in today's time. What was it like back then? What was it what was it like especially for working class girls and women to appear in court and, you know, specifically after reform? Mm. Um that's a that's a good that's a very good point to raise. And I think 
Um, and it's it was not good. I have to say the courts did not treat women well at the time. Uh, they did not treat women or girls well at the time at all. Um, and sort of that kind of prejudices that we can still see today against uh, women who bring cases, they were very much existed at the time and in many ways were even amplified in that period. So, yeah. um, for example, I have and give an example of a particular judge. His name was uh, Baron Huddleston, just to give a bit of context. Uh, so Baron Huddleston, he was a judge who was presiding over a series of cases in Middlesex. So at the time, it was quite common for criminal cases to be heard in big bundle. They were called assizes. And so you would have uh, over a few days, you would set one jury together. And then over, say, three cases, three days, you would hear a series of cases and you would have one judge presiding over it. So in one of these cases, uh, one of these sort of uh, sessions, uh, the judge was uh, Baron Huddleston. And uh, in the record, it says that uh, before... Um, he went on record to explain that before the jury heard any evidence on a single case, he said that juries need to be very vigilant in the cases of rape and child sex abuse because based on his very long professional experience, forced charges in cases of sexual offences are far more in common than in any other type of cases. So this was mm-hmm. a judge before a trial was a single trial was even heard. So that gives us a little bit of context on how some of the judges at least approach these cases. And one of the findings from my research is that even after the age of consent was raised to 16, the courts were really reluctant to believe victims and they were also reluctant to enforce the legislation fully. And it's definitely fair to say that the Criminal Amendment Act uh, received a mixed response in courts. Um, in most of the cases that are reviewed, the victims were very young and they were well below the age of consent. Mm. They were often younger than 12. And despite the young age of the victim, despite the fact that these were girls often age, below age of, at, uh, 12 or 10, the courts often didn't view them as victims. Um, it almost appears on these trials that the victims were on trial as much as the defendants mm. were. And the courts questioned the girls about their sexual history. Uh, very mm-hmm. often, despite the age of the victim, they tried to find evidence that the girls had some sort of bad character by looking at their actions or if they were swearing a lot or if they had been reported to be swearing. And mm-hmm. um, at the time, it was just quite common, it seems, from these cases that working class girls were often presumed to be sexually active. And so even victims who were below the age of 12, for example, they could often be questioned about their sexual history on trial. Um, these girls were often medically examined for signs of loss of hymen or lo- mm. evidence for previous sexual encounters by medical experts in courts. And you can imagine for a girl age of uh, eight, for example, a working class girl being in trial for the first time, uh, facing authority like a judge who's questioning them, but them about their sexual history. It must have been an incredibly, incredibly daunting experience. And legally, mm. these cases... They were to determine whether or not the defendant was guilty. The cases should have simply been whether or not intercourse took place because the victim, by default, had no capacity to consent because they were below the age of consent. But this was really not the way it was understood. And often consent was discussed as evidence of victims' unreliability or that their wickedness or to argue that the man's actions were understandable uh, in the circumstances. So... All in all, the girls were really faced suspicion all the way through and the system was really stacked against them. 
this brings me also to what we discussed earlier about you know this idea of child prostitutes and even that term child prostitutes yeah. is so problematic because it implies that you know a, a child can decide to you know prostitute themselves you know they can consent or they can uh, you know they can they can decide to do that i mean it's it it is not that it is child rape or child abuse mm. um no absolutely and you can see that coming through in a lot of these cases you can see that coming through where even in cases say um incest within a family you would see that the girls would be questioned whether or not they were sure that they didn't consent to uh, sexual abuse by their father, for example. And there was this this sort of um, endless suspicion that came to girls uh, throughout the system. And I completely agree with you. The term child prostitution itself, although it's quite commonly used at the time, it's completely paradoxical in terms of its meaning. By Like you say, by very default, a child is not meant to yeah. be able to consent. So it shouldn't have been questioned at all. But somehow it's managed to make its way to court proceedings over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it must have been really challenging for you to, you know, find all of this data and to, you know, put it together. And just like that research process must have been quite something. I mean, based on that, I want to ask you, you know, coming from uh, coming away from this article and to your research in general what's what's lockdown been like and you know what future research looks like for you if you if you you know if that's something that you've thought of mm, i'll actually be doing a lot more work on this as things progress uh during lockdown um i don't know if uh, people have taken very different approach as opposed to during lockdown but i definitely haven't been one of those people who have been incredibly productive during lockdown so <laughs> I'm not emerging out of lockdown with series of publication I have to say um but so for the future I'll actually be doing a lot more work on this area um I've been awarded the Leverhulme fellowship to research the history of sexual concerning criminal courts so I'll be doing wow. that all of next year uh fortunately wow. uh, and so in that project I'm really interested in sort of similar to this, but in a wider perspective, I suppose, of how consent was spoken about during trials. And so we know mm. that the first definition of consent comes into the law in England uh, in 2003 with the Sexual Offences Act. But the English law was um, already consent-based in the 19th century. So in this bigger project, uh, what I'm interested in is how was consent, consent spoken about in court before there was a legal definition of consent? So how did mm. victims speak about it, defendants, those judges? So this legal term that we now understand, how was it understood then when there was no guidance right. to go by? And right. so I'm looking at this in relation to rape cases, trafficking cases, and then case of child sexual abuse, the things that I spoke about today uh, between the years of um, 1870s to 1950s. So the idea of the project is really to think about if we put consent in a different context, we think about child sexual abuse cases, people who by default shouldn't have had the capacity, or if we think about trafficking cases where often poverty and economic deprivation played a huge part, or if we think about rape mm. cases where the victim's age and marital status would have an impact. So when we take all of these different contexts into account, did people speak about consent in the same way or did it change in every, cons- uh, in every different context it had? So that's my project mm. for next year. Um, and so it turns out archives are reopening now. So everything has been shut down for the lockdown and 
it seems archives are reopening very soon. So I'll be doing some more archival work and then starting to write this project. And then as part of it, I'm also meant to stage a two sort of small performance pieces and taking an old trial and then thinking about if we take this old trial and reenact it in the contemporary terms, that can that tell us something about consent and how it's whether it is historically bound or is there something sort of fundamental about consent? I'm not entirely sure how that's going to work out with all the social distancing and restrictions or whether it's going to be online <laughs> or in per- it was meant to have been a uh, sort of normal performance before, but now we might need to online performance. We will see. So that's my plan anyway. And I might be in touch with you about that if you're interested. Having yeah, chat about of it. course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It sounds fascinating. I mean, congratulations on your fi- fellowship and, you know, already <laughs> all of this sounds... Sounds really interesting. And I want to say that, you know, this idea that you have to be productive in lockdown, I think the idea is just just not not cool. You just have to survive. That's that's the principle behind lo- lockdown. Absolutely. Yeah. It's given, I think, and I think particularly from feminist perspectives, it's given so mm. much pressure for women who have young children at home and trying to balance work. And, and overall, even without those constraints, I just, I think we have to accept a global pandemic is a time when people can genuinely just go on a lockdown and they do not need to be so productive yeah of course and you know it's, it's, a, it's a new situation I mean I'm sure it's been said before by people who are far more eloquent than I but you really just need to survive and just take care of yourself and your mental health and your health and just mm-hmm. that uh but I'm, I mean I'm so excited to hear of your you know research I mean it's a, such a fascinating piece to read and also to see what you do next but I want to ask you if you know the process of doing this research is emotionally draining i mean you're reading all of these cases all of these you know historical stories and you know re- going through this law which was really traumatizing for you know the women who had to who had to be at the other end of these laws but also for you you know as someone who's sort of curating this research what is it emotionally draining and do you how do you balance your emotional well-being with your work um I think it's it's a really good point and I think it's something that we have traditionally been quite bad at acknowledging Uh, I think we've been quite bad acknowledging how difficult it can actually be to research something like this I think historical research you still have that bit of distance but I for example people do do empirical work it can be incredibly traumatizing to sit through a lot of interviews um, and I think it's something that we haven't generally acknowledged in the academic community as well. But it's something that we have definitely become more and more aware of lately. And it's something that I try to think about, uh, both in my research and in my teaching. But I don't think I have yeah. definitely found the balance uh, yet. And I sometimes think as a lecturer of criminal law, I actually find teaching sexual offenses sometimes more difficult than the research um and sometimes it can be very difficult to teach this uh some of these cases over and over again and the principles and the social context and uh it's difficult for yeah. me but also because you always know that uh in the audience there's always those students to whom this is personal you know that there are mm. those students who have these experiences of rape of child sexual abuse and you know how much they would be struggling just to be there and trying mm. to engage and and i do find that aspect really uh really difficult and i think sometimes more difficult than um than the research i'm very unfortunate Mm. i'm very fortunate to have good support network of my colleagues some of who do similar type of work and i do find it important to just talk about it um to share the stories that i read 
but there's no way around it that some of these cases do stay with you. Uh, they stay with you for years, and and I don't, I haven't found a way to balance all that. Uh, but I do sometimes mm. find that writing helps, and it helps by putting your own narrative into it and sort of putting your own framework into it. Yeah, there's something that Francisca Mink, who's a child abuse researcher that I interviewed in episode, mm. the first, I think it was the second episode or the third episode, and she said that and she does a lot of field work with uh with children who've mm. been abused and she said she answered this question she said you know it's hard but that's why we do it mm. um and that's really stayed with me but really you know more power to you and we're also lucky that you're doing this research for you for, for us but finally what i want to ask you is the last question what is one practical thing that listeners can do to tackle sexual violence um you know on their own levels I think there's one thing that everyone can do, regardless of um, regardless of where they are, what kind of position they was, uh, they occupy in life, uh, and that's to just simply believe believe women, um, mm. and believe when women say that they've been victims of violence or abuse, and and just believe when women say that they feel uncomfortable more than anything, right. without questioning it, without trying to answer the circumstances, and just let people talk and believe what they say um we do need a shift in the way we understand sexual abuse and violence and autonomy but i think the first step in taking those things serious is taking those things seriously and believing when people share their stories whether it's in friendship groups whether it's in research whether it's in media whether it's in courts or whether it's in your family it's just taking the time to listen and believe when people say that they feel uncomfortable or that they have been victims of abuse of some kind Hmm. Wow, that's very profound. And, you know, I think that's a great note to end this conversation on. Laura, thank you so much for talking to me. But thank you, you know, primarily for the incredibly important work that you're doing. We're so lucky that we have you looking at all of this history and telling us how it all pieces together. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. This has been, uh, it's been a pleasure to take part. And like I say, I really enjoyed the earlier oh. episodes of this podcast. So thank you for keeping it going and recording all this thing. It's been great to chat about my research. Oh, thank you.